Hello, and welcome to Lost in Citation. Today, I am your guest host, and my name is Todd Bukins, and I am honored to be interviewing Dr. Rob Waring, and he is the author of the book, Teaching Extensive Reading in Another Language. And this book was written by Dr. Waring and Paul Nation. So welcome to the show, Dr. Waring. Thank you very much, Todd. It's nice to be here. So in this book, you basically lay, lay out the ground rules for setting up extensive reading and why it's important to have uh, extensive reading to learn a second language. Can you give a little background about the premise of the book and, and why you wrote it? Okay. Well, uh, there are several books already out there on extensive reading, one of which was written by uh, Julian Bamford and Richard Day back in 1999, which was basically one for teaching practitioners, that is, teachers giving you some tips and hints about how to do it, why we would do it, and so on. Since that time, there have also been some guides to extensive reading. Uh, one is by the Extensive Reading Foundation, and that's very much a practical how to do extensive reading. So there's quite a lot of information out there on the practical side of extensive reading. And so what Paul and I wanted to do was to do something a little bit more academic, a little bit more with a tone where we provide evidence for extensive reading. And we talk about extensive reading in ways that haven't really been dealt with before in previous books. So we start off by saying why extensive reading is uh, relatively a simple thing, but also very complex. Maybe we'll get into that. We talk about what graded readers are and uh, why they are important, especially for EFL and uh, ESL. Then we look at some case studies of extensive reading programs. So we wanted the readers to learn about how extensive reading is implemented in various programs around the world. And uh, we then spend some time thinking about how to set up a program in detail and what's the evidence for why these things would be the best advice we can give the teachers. The next chapter is about how vocabulary is learned from extensive reading. And this is to help teachers understand the process of vocabulary acquisition from extensive reading. There's quite a bit of confusion about this. And so we wanted to clarify that. So um, how, how is there confusion about vocabulary acquisition and reading? Well, one thing that we typically hear when people talk about research into extensive reading is they talk about the question, how many new words are learned or how much vocabulary is learned from reading? And when this is operationalized into research, this typically means that a researcher or teacher would test the students on their vocabulary before the study. They would then give them some reading to do, and they would test the students again on the vocabulary, probably the same vocabulary or the vocabulary in their reading. And the idea is to measure the difference between before and after the reading was done. And typically the test would be either a multiple choice test or sometimes a translation test from the English into the mother tongue. Uh, this sounds from the outside like a very logical thing to do. The problem with that is that if you think about the way that extensive reading works, 
is that in order to read extensively, you already need to know quite a lot of the words already. So 98, 99% of the words should already be known. The idea of extensive reading is to build fluency and automaticity when reading. So what that means is if students are reading extensively, let's say 100,000 or 200,000 words, most of these words they know already. What that means is, of course, they're not going to pick up many new words because they're not meeting many new words, and therefore the data show that not a lot of learning was done from graded reading. And that's an outcome of the way that the research was structured. So what Paul and I do in the book is try to show that there's different types of vocabulary that can be learned, different types of vocabulary knowledge that, need, that come from extensive reading. For example, we might build uh, reading speed. We might build lexical access speed, how quickly they can find words. We might, uh, with extensive reading, help students to notice how words go together or to get a greater sense of collocation of how the word works. So when we talk about learning of vocabulary from extensive reading, we have to look at it for what extensive reading is designed, which is really about the deeper aspects of vocabulary. Now, that doesn't mean that new words will not be learned. Of course they will. But the, ch the opportunity to learn new words is not as much as it would be from an intensive reading. So we have quite a lot of confusion about people saying, well, we don't learn much from extensive reading. That's what the studies say. Well, that's true because you're looking at only new words. And as we know, it takes maybe 15 or 20 times uh, that student has to meet the word before it's available receptively. So we just have to be very careful about how we structure the research question. And we wanted to try to make sure that that confusion was, uh, was clarified. Yeah, you, you bring up a good point. Um, you know, one of the things that seems uh, like, you know, the elephant in the room that teachers don't want to talk about is how do students learn these words? Like where, where did they learn their original words in L1, mm -hmm. and then how do they learn words in L2? Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about the difference between learning words for L1 and learning words for L2? Well, for your L1, of course, because it's your first language, you're going to be picking up words for a newer environment. And of course, when you're learning words, and let's say you're five years old, and nobody gives you a dictionary, nobody gives you a word list, nobody gives you a textbook to learn you just pick them up from the environment as you go and nearly always through uh, spoken language until you start to read at age four or five so the big difference is that the words are learned uh, slowly and uh, in very uh, approximate ways and there's a wonderful ted talk by a man called deb ray uh, i encourage everybody to go and watch it that shows um a series of videos of how uh, his son learned to uh, pronounce the, the word water. And he took about 50 attempts to do so. It's a very interesting talk. I encourage everybody to go and have a look at it. And um, so learning in a first language, you're going to pick it up from the environment. It's only when you start to read, do you start to then match a spelling to something you probably already know. So you if you see uh, some words in a book about a cat or a dog, you, as a four or five-year-old child, already know most of those words, but you just don't know them in a written form. So you're just learning an extra piece of knowledge. You already have the meaning. You already know what it sounds like, but you don't know how it's written. 
So that's what we're doing in first language reading for, um, for the learning of vocabulary. In second language reading, and foreign language reading, students typically don't have the benefit when they start learning the foreign language. They don't have the benefit of uh, all of this vocabulary, which first language children do. So when you start learning English at, say, eight or nine years old, you have basically zero, maybe a few loan words or words you picked up from your environment. But your job as a second language learner is to not only learn what the word means and how that matches to something in your first language, but also its spelling and its pronunciation. So it's a vastly different task. So when students are learning to read in a first language, they can use um, books written with quite a wide range of vocabulary because an average four or five-year-old already knows three, 4,000 words and almost all of the important grammar. But for second language and foreign language reading, they don't have this knowledge. So they need to have very carefully structured language. They need to start off by uh, learning the how words sound and how words are written, so this, uh, this form meaning relationship. And so phonics is a very important aspect of that. Once they've got the basic sound uh, meaning connection, then they can start looking at the written connection through reading. And this has to be deliberately learned in a first language and in a second language. So the task is quite different, significantly different between the two. Another big difference for second language learning is that it's very typical for teachers to give students word lists or to give them uh, some, uh, maybe an app to learn from or play some kind of a games, which we typically don't do in first language. So a lot of vocabulary learning is quite conscious learning at that form meaning relationship where a student is trying to match the, the spelling or the sound of a word to its meaning. Yeah, uh, actually, that, that brings up a good point. If, if, let's say, for example, you have an L1 student mm. and they're reading along and they see a word like indispensable. Mm -hmm. Now, the chances are that a, in the L1, the student has heard the word indispensable before. Mm -hmm. But in L2, maybe a student has not heard the word before, even if they have, uh, you know, phonics training. Mm. Um, can you kind of uh, explain how this would work in extensive reading? Um, well, I think when we're learning vocabulary in that way, if they're meeting the word indispensable, um, they may, depending on their level of knowledge, have some knowledge of the morphology of English. So, for example, uh, beginning level learners would uh, be able to notice that play or plays or played are probably the same word. Um, but a word like to dispense it's not immediately obvious that indispensable is from the same word. So when they learn more morphological knowledge of the affixes, then when that becomes sort of system knowledge, they can notice that, oh, here's an ED at the end of a word. That might be, mean it's past tense. Or here's LY. Oh, it's probably some kind of an adverb. Slow, slowly, for example. And so they would pick up this morphological knowledge over time. Now, this system knowledge of building uh, the knowledge of affixes and derivatives and how this works probably is best taught intentionally because it will help students to raise awareness of uh, how words are put together. So we should spend some considerable amount of time on word parts. However, we can't teach every word like that. And um, there are just far too many of them to learn. 
So this system knowledge is really important and we should make sure that students have this system knowledge of the morphology of words before they reach, uh, before they start reading extensively or even intensively. But also importantly, we need to help students notice to help them see that, ah, this word actually has uh, the core base, but also has some affixes. Now you can bring your knowledge of what the core base meaning of the word would be, dispense, and then the, uh, the morphemes on the end, in and abel. So we need to have quite a lot of training, of deliberate training of students, so that when they start to read independently, and particularly when they approach tests, where they're not allowed to have a dictionary, uh, they can start to disambiguate these words and then break them into their parts and uh, deal with them uh, uh, in real time. Because as Paul says in, in our book, the, the single most vo important vocabulary strategy you can teach students is learning how to guess successfully from context. And this doesn't mean just only learning the meaning, but also working out using your system knowledge whether this word belongs to the dispense family, for example, or slowly belongs to slow. And so this knowledge has to be taught or this, this skill, uh, this, this training needs to happen to help students prepare for texts where there will be unknown words. Okay, so I'm going to put you on the spot here. So I've heard you speak before, and I've been to a lot of these conferences with extensive reading. And it seems like um, at these conferences, it's almost like an all or nothing mentality. Mm -hmm. So the people that really uh, want to promote extensive reading, the followers, the practitioners, they don't, they don't really talk too much about the intensive stuff or mm -hmm. the um, breaking it down, like you just mm -hmm. said, with morphology and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So mm -hmm. being the expert, if you were to create a reading program, your dream reading program, mm -hmm. what kind of balance would you have in the program between um, more bottom-up training like you're talking about mm -hmm. and extensive reading? Um, both Paul and I um, are interested in extensive reading primarily because it's the kind of missing piece of the puzzle for language learning. Both he and I uh, are not people who believe that extensive reading is a cure-all. Neither of us believe that the only thing you need to do is to have extensive reading and everything else will magically happen. There are people out there who do believe that. Um, and I think the problem with that analogy is that there's a lot that you can do from intensive learning. So what needs to happen in any program is to have balance. And Paul Nation has put forward the idea of four strands. Um, and the four strands involve... Um, deliberate learning of the grammar, the vocabulary, the phonics, um, and all those aspects of language which uh, you can pay attention to, deliberately learn, probably be deliberately tested on, and you can check your knowledge whether you've got it right or wrong. We also need to make sure that students have access to um, materials that they, uh, that they meet in volume. So lots and lots and lots of access to language. So the conscious learning, the deliberate learning that Paul talks about in his four strands is something that I was talking about before, about training students how to uh, guess words from context, making sure they know the morphological knowledge, making sure that they've got the phonics. So this is really important to have that. But they also need to see words in context and see how words are joined together with collocations or in colligations, how 
the patterns fit and just get a sense of what words go with what grammar and get a feeling for the, how the grammar works. Um, but on top of that, they also need to have fluency. So we need to have automaticity as well. We need to have speed reading and speed listening in there so that students are getting all aspects of word knowledge. So a dream reading program probably, I think, is not the way I would look at it. I would say, what's the dream language learning program? Because it has to be seen as a whole. Uh, the reading component should involve some deliberate learning of, say, phonics, or maybe some intentional word learning, some, uh, some phonics if necessary, if you're, if you're students at the really low level, and uh, quite a lot of building on vocabulary skills and strategies. But also, we need to have the intensive work where we're teaching students, usually as a class, uh, about uh, particular strategies, reading strategies, and obviously skimming, scanning, how to guess from paragraph, how to see the, um, uh, the structure of a text, and so on. All of this work needs to be done. And extensive reading is something that you do after all that's been done. And uh, one way that we can frame this in a slightly different way is to think about when we are learning to drive a car. So when you go to, uh, when you're thinking about driving a car, what you do, the first thing you do is you pick up the road rules, you go to a driving school, you get someone to show you how to drive the car, where the pedals are, what, the, what this does, what that does, and they sit next to you and guide you in the mechanics of the car in a similar way that a teacher or a textbook will guide you with the mechanics of learning a language. But also, you then have some uh, practice driving on the road, careful driving on the road with the teacher sitting next to you. Um, and we have that with reading as well. We have the intensive reading. But in the end, to become a really good fluent driver, you'll need to have that practice on the road by yourself, just getting a feel for what's happening on the road, getting a feel for uh, what the potential problems might be, what your direction would be. And to become a skilled driver, we need to have practice. So I don't suggest that anybody just jump in the car and drive it. They need to have some intentional practice, some, some knowledge building going on before they uh, get into actually driving the car and to be trusted with a license. Yeah, that's a great analogy. Actually, you know, uh, as, as you know, um, we both are uh, interested in, in the same field. I'm very much interested in extensive reading mm. and I have a website related to that and you have websites related to extensive um, reading. I'm sorry, I have a website related to extensive listening. Hello? Uh, yeah, yeah. Hello, and you have a site related to extensive reading. Mm -hmm. But the word extensive actually kind of throws me off a bit. I mm. think it's the wrong term because I think mm. when people hear extensive, they think of these long extended periods of time. Yep. Um, and I prefer Four the word texts. Right. Unstructured practice. Right. You know, I think it's more really unstructured practice. When you look at sports, usually the countries that do the best in any sport um, have uh, players who played a lot as children and they had unstructured practice. They played pickup games in basketball or baseball or soccer or whatever, and then they become the best in the world. Mm -hmm. And it seems that way with musicians and anything. So it makes sense that we would also have that in education, right? And so the more you read, you just read a lot, unstructured practice, um, it seems that that is the way to go. But one of the problems is in education, anything that's unstructured is not measurable. And that kind of leads to the, uh, the frowning from admin people on things like extensive listening or extensive reading because it's, it's unstructured. You can't 
quantify it. So how would you address that problem? Or how would you suggest teachers approach their admin staff in trying to incorporate extensive reading or extensive listening? Okay, so the issue there is really about uh, the promotion of extensive reading and understanding that and then making sure that that message is uh, transmitted uh, carefully and um, uh, in, a, in a, a way that is easily understood by administration, students, teachers. So um, there's several ways we can do that. Um, there are ways we can show from extensive reading that there are gains. Um, these might be direct. You can, as I said before, measure how many words they learn or how many new collocations they learn. You could do experimental evidence. And I think for many people, particularly researchers, they really value that. And they want to be able to show that this study showed 20% or 15% or 18%. And some teachers are very persuaded by that. Another way that we can approach this is just the um, common sense notion. Well, how did you learn your first language? Well, you learned it from massive input. You had eight, 10, 15 hours a day of input and uh, for year after year after year. And therefore, if students are not getting that input in a second language, then common sense tells us that that's what we need to do. Another way we can approach this is to uh, have a sort of emotional reaction towards it by saying, um, well, one of the benefits of extensive reading is not just from a linguistic language point of view, it's also enabling in terms of um, by reading stories about people, you might become more empathetic, you might understand the human condition more. If you're reading informational texts, you're building up your world knowledge, your knowledge in certain areas, and so on. So there are different ways to approach this. Um, and every teacher in every administration usually has a different button, and some of them have all the buttons. Um, but common sense just simply says, of course, we need massive input. How on earth can you expect otherwise? When I go back to data, um, we can also look at it from a perspective of uh, what we call word frequency. Um, this means, um, as you know, that there are some words which are more frequent than others. And if we look at a very large corpus of text, we can actually predict quite, quite accurately uh, how many words you need to meet before a certain word would appear again. So the word the, for example, appears statistically about every 18 or 19 words. So the 18 words later, the 18 words later, the statistically. But when we start looking at this in terms of the thousandth most frequent word or the six thousandth most frequent word, we can do the math. And we can, we know, for example, to meet the thousandth most frequent word in English, just one time, you'll need to meet about 8,000 words. So if you want to meet it 10 times or 20 times, that is the conditions for learning, which I mentioned before, you're going to have to read 80,000 or 160,000 words. That's just the mathematics of language. So if you want students to get a vocabulary larger than a, than a, a thousand words or 2,000 or 4,000 or 5,000 5, words as, a, as a, a vocabulary size, then uh, in order to be at that level, say advanced level, you're going to need mathematically students need to meet millions and millions and millions of words in terms of making sure they get the repetition. Now, this can be shortcut a little bit by intentional learning, which is why we have to have that balance between intensive and extensive reading. So I think there are several ways that we can approach this uh, in terms of persuading people uh, 
uh, it's very difficult to, as you said, to provide evidence for some things. But that would be the same for many aspects of where's the evidence that grammar teaching is necessarily better uh, than something else. We don't know. We have no evidence of that. In fact, we have literally, and I mean this quite literally, we have no evidence whatsoever that says uh, that will tell us how many times you need to meet a particular grammatical form before it's learned. None. Zero. We don't know if the past tense takes 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times. We don't know if, say, conditionals are 500 times or 300 times, 3,000 times. We just simply don't know. But as an industry, what we do is we often structure syllabuses from a grammatical perspective. Now, unit one is the B verb. Unit two is, say, the present simple. Unit three is the present continuous and so on. We structure our uh, syllabuses around the grammatical principle, but we have absolutely no idea how much or how many times that particular grammatical feature needs to be learned. So if we have people saying, oh, grammar first, well, where's your evidence? Where's your evidence of this? We do have some evidence of vocabulary. We have no evidence that grammar should be first or should be the primary factor. So that doesn't mean that this should not be meant that grammar is not worth it. It's absolutely worth it. But if people are sort of saying, or oh, provide evidence why extensive reading works, I would restrict the question and say, okay, provide evidence that a focus on grammar works as well. Um, so we need to be balanced about the way that we approach this. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So how many words does a, a college-educated um, reader know usually in their L1? In the L1? Um, there are many different ways to count words or what we mean by a word, but we would say typically they would know about 20 to 25,000 word families. Now, a word family is where you have the base form of the word like use. You also have its inflections like uses, used, using, but also the derivatives like user, disuse, misuse, usability, um, but probably not words like utility. Uh, which are not really, they don't have the same root. So we, about twenty to 25,000 word families. Wow, that's so much. I mean, that, that actually just gives um, proof to your, you know, your whole theory, because there's no way that a learner is going to mechanically or intentionally learn 20,000 plus words, right? That's right. I mean, you can never build a textbook and give that to students with all these words, and it's just going to kill them. It's going to be about, you know... Um, maybe two meters high, the book, right? It's just not possible to have all these words in there like that with all the practice that you need. So there has to be massive uh, input. And it's the, the, the key thing for extensive reading is not just about that first stage of learning, matching the form with its meaning and spelling. The key thing for extensive reading is the deeper knowledge, the association knowledge, the network knowledge, the collocational knowledge, the automaticity, the fluency, which you cannot get from deliberate study. Yeah, that's so true. And also, you know, in the extensive listing environment that, that I do a lot of research in, you know, the thing that always pops out to me is um, phrases, mm. words that, you know, one idea unit per yes. se. Yeah. So you might have a phrase like at the end of the day. Yes. Well, at the end of the day really is the same as the word watermelon. Um, it's multisyllable. It has one meaning. The length is about the same, you know, at the end of the day, watermelon. Mm. Uh, but it's, it's hard for a learner to learn that mechanically. 
Yes. You know, so can you talk a little bit about that? And also mm. words that have more than one meaning, for example, the word, um, so, or the word like report. Yeah. Well, um, let's deal with the first uh, thing that you talked about, uh, which was about the, the phrases. There are, um, quite a lot of, um, pieces of research now that look at the frequency of phrases or what we might call formulaic language. There are about 50 different ways to describe these language chunks or big words or whatever. So let's just call them uh, expressions or phrases, as you've said. There's many, many different types. Um, and certainly for spoken language, we have some estimates have between 30 and others up to 50% of spoken language is formulaic to some degree. Um, and that's a very, very high percentage. There's a lot of automatic phrases which natives use, like, um, do you mind if I, uh, would, you, would you care to, uh, it doesn't matter, or let's get something to eat, uh, have you done, da-da-da. So there's lots and lots of sort of formulaic or semi-formulaic phrases, particularly in spoken language. Less so, it seems, in written language. So they are quite hard to learn, um, uh, particularly because they are made up of several different elements. And typically students have been taught to break down words into their constituent parts. Um, and this is an outcome of grammar where you look at a particular sentence, you say, oh, well, okay, so where's the subject? Where's the verb? Where's the so-and-so? And so this analytical way of looking at language often happens with students when they are learning phrases. So they say at the end of the day, so we've got day, we've got end, so does this mean seven o'clock or eight o'clock? Hmm. And when actually it doesn't always mean that at the end of the day it can also mean at the end of the event or at the end of the discussion or at the end of uh, the thing we're talking about, which might be the end of the day could refer to a period of time over several months. So that connotation that comes from that often is not learnt well because the students haven't felt that in text. So we're not just going to see at the end of the day where we're talking to a particular day, where we're also going to see it in text that at the end of the day would be at a longer period of time. So students need to build up that sense because there's no way that a teacher can teach the tens of thousands of phrases um, and all the nuances of, of each one. There is no dictionary of phrases that students can easily look at. Um, and so it makes it very, very, very difficult. So there's quite a lot of problems when we start looking at, uh, at words. The second question you, look, you asked me about was about words with multiple meaning senses. And I think that if you, uh, Paul often says that there are not actually too many words which are truly, um, have two meaning senses, which are truly what we call um, homonyms. So a word like bank is both financial would also say bank of a river or a bank of computers or a plain banks around the corner. A corner. And he says that from some research by uh, a researcher in Korea called Kevin Parent um, said that there are actually only about a hundred truly um, words which are in this, this category, these homonymous words. Um, I don't always sort of think that's that, that would be my, my feeling. I think there are lots and lots and lots of words have multiple meaning senses, which are quite distinct. I have my own dictionary that I've been building, and it seems to me around at least a third 
of those words have multiple meaning senses, some of them two, some of them five, or slight different nuances of meaning that really make a difference depending on the collocation. So again, the problem is what do you do with all these multiple meaning senses? Do you teach them intentionally? Um, here's the word, flashcards, off you go. Or do you learn them uh, by picking them all up? And I think, again, it's to do with a the balance there. Teachers need to know not only what are the core meanings, but also what are the secondary and third meanings and fourth meanings. But uh, some words like, say, get has, say, 50 different meanings, but it doesn't make sense to go and teach 50 meanings of get. We should teach maybe the top two to three or four different meanings of get and the uh, less frequent ones, just let the students pick them up over time. So the teaching of phrases and the teaching of multi-part words is something that has to be done both intentionally at some level, but at the same time has to be done uh, through massive exposure to uh, lots and lots of textbooks written and spoken. The other thing we haven't talked about is about the difference between spoken text and written text. And as you know, with all of your work with extensive listening, the vocabulary and the phrases and the structure of sentences for spoken language is significantly different from uh, written language. And that really is quite impactful because quite a lot of research that we know about extensive reading uh, in terms of frequency comes from written corpora, not from spoken corpora. And we need to be very aware that, uh, and, and do more research and be very aware that there are probably some uses that are uh, of a word which are particularly only spoken or only written and again student needs to feel a sense of what do we say that's spoken and what do we say or what do we not usually say that's written and all of this has to be built up from uh, some intentional learning some coaching but at the same time um, by some uh, massive practice to listening text and to uh, reading uh, in in terms of reading as well yeah, it's interesting that you say that because um, it's kind of like uh, that game Whack-A-Mole, you know, where oh, yes. you're, you're yes. always you're hitting, you know, yeah. the, you hit one and it comes up, a uh, problem up. comes yeah. up somewhere, somewhere else. Yeah. And, um, you know, in, I'm always a big proponent of spoken English, but sure. a lot of what I do is interview format similar to this, mm -hmm. which means there's another part of spoken English that we never get on audio. Mm -hmm. For example, if you want to ask um, for a favor, textbook might say, you know, can I borrow your car? Where in reality, the person's probably going to say something like, hey, by any chance, and you can say no if you want, but would it be possible if I borrow your car? Mm -hmm. Well, you're never going to get that in a textbook, and I can't get that in an interview. You're mm -hmm. probably never going to get that in a written text because it's too long. They would just shorten it. Mm -hmm. So it does make you realize, you know, why we need so much variety. Sure, sure. The other thing too, of course, is... Um, it's very important, as you well know, that students not only listen to, um, to monologues, but particularly to dialogue. Right. And that interaction of text is so important because one of the things that our industry doesn't talk about in terms of the way that we write materials is we tend to have this idea of somebody, uh, let's say a teacher or a, an author would write a particular text. Okay. The teacher would say, I need to have a text in a bank. What would happen? So, you know, the customer says this and the bank clerk says this and customer says this and bank clerk says that, whatever. And it would structure out a typical conversation. And that's useful at some level. Um, but when you get to interviews like what you do, you do lots of those things. One of the things that I've noticed when listening to the LO texts 
is there's a kind of co-creation of the text. It's not like scripted in advance. I'm going to be saying this and that and the other. So there's a, there's a, there's a, a bouncing effect where even in this conversation, you've listened to me, you've responded to what I've said and then moved off in one tangent. You'd listen to me and then we'd move off into a different tangent. And this co-creation of text is something that we just don't really think about when we are, we're, we're structuring uh, our language for the students because so much of it is, has already been written, it's already scripted. And we need to have students not only listening to something, but also be involved in the actual speaking and listening as well. They need to, to not only just get practice to it, but also need to have, uh, in, a, in a receptive sense, they need to have productive practice of knowing when to chip in on all those strategies about when to interrupt, when to add, when to qualify, how to complain or how to agree, how to agree strongly or disagree strongly and so on. All of this needs to be done through massive practice, spoken practice. So, and there are now some websites starting to do that. There are uh, opportunities for teachers, uh, for students, beg your pardon, to, uh, to have a, a language partner, say for example, in the Philippines or in Thailand or somewhere else. And that's a great thing. We need to have much, much more of that co-creation side of language, which is the hardest part. Yeah. And actually that brings up a good point, you know, about uh, technology. Mm. So one of the things that fascinates me when you look at the history mm. of methodology is that methodology really is always dominated by technology. It really is mm. the tail that wags the dog. So basically methodology could only grow as fast as technology grows, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, for example, you can't have extensive listening until you have CD players or you have radio or, or whatnot. Yeah, or or so, textbooks even, you know, how, how do you teach a, a crowd of a hundred or a thousand students in a, in a school district without a book? Right, exactly. So that brings up the question, uh, being an expert, do you see changes coming down the pipe where technology might change how we do extensive reading? For example, Netflix. So Netflix has all the, um, the captions mm. or the subtitles. And so the, the captions would be better, I suppose. Mm. So the person can listen and read at the same time. Mm. Could you see that as being a replacement for books in the extensive reading format? Probably not. Um, the reason I say that is um, not as a replacement, I think as an addition to our current arsenal, our current set of tools we have. Certainly, I think it's a great thing for students to be able to listen to something and see the subtitles. The problem with subtitles, of course, is they're not always one-to-one. -one. Um, and uh, I was watching a Japanese movie the other day and somebody was talking about 30 seconds and then on the screen popped up, yes. So <laughs> clearly we have a problem there. So if there's an exact one-to-one, -one, then that could be certainly used for study and there are some websites out there now which do that. They take YouTube videos and they transcribe them and students can study them. And that's fine. Um, the, the issue we've got there is that, again, it's, it's scripted in a way. It's not interactive. And I think for extensive reading, uh, reading on a screen is slightly different from watching uh, or reading on, a, on, on paper. The... Issue with um, Netflix transcriptions is not that that's a bad thing to do, but they typically are spoken language, of course, um, and they don't really have many low frequency words or middle frequency words, not to have technical words. And 
it's also quite difficult in listening to like stop and go back, stop and go back every few seconds. With reading, you've got a lot more chance to sort of stop, look at the word, look at the context around it, get out your dictionary. Um, there's a lot more that you can do. Uh, you can't do that so much with text on a screen. So that's different. And I think the idea of just having a book and being able to turn page is very uh, very tactile and many, many people like this idea of being able to to read through something at length, to be able to go uh, at the speed that they want to. So I can't see it as a replacement. I certainly see it as a, a great form of language practice in a certain domain. You know, uh, watching Netflix videos, for example, will be great for some types of vocabulary acquisition, but would not be good for others. Um, you might be able to, for example, notice register. You might be able to notice a new word in context. But the other problem with that is, let's say you've learned five new words from this Netflix video. When are you going to meet them again? Well, the, ne you're, the, the only way you know you're going to meet them again is by watching the movie again. Um, but you might find that the words in movie A are fine. You learned 10 words from movie A. You learn 10 different words from movie B, 10 different words from movie C. The problem with that is that's one hit learning and they're going to meet it there and then unless they do something conscious like write it down in a notebook or make flashcards of it or something, unless they do deliberate practice after that, it's just going to be a victim to the forgetting curve. So if we have too much one hit learning, that's fine for the immediate moment, but might not help long term acquisition. So we need to make sure that these words come back again and again in some other way. And that's why graded readers are very useful because they are purposefully structured so that they have a limited number of words which come again and again and again, not only at level one, but repeated level two, repeated level three. It's structured scaffolded practice. So when we get individual standalone texts, for example, like Netflix texts or native books or even children's native books, your Harry Potters and so on, the books are not connected to each other. There's no systematic syllabus between those books. And therefore, there's a danger that quite a lot of the effort put into it may be lost to the forgetting curve unless something additional is done, such as some form of deliberate practice um, or rereading the text. Wow, that's interesting. Um, actually, uh, one thing that's, that's really um, phenomenal about you is that you are a professor and you're kind of old school when you first meet you. you know, that's like your appearance and the traditional way of learning through books and this and that. Uh -huh. But you actually uh, spend a lot of your time and effort and your own income actually developing apps and yeah. websites. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that a bit? Sure. Um, as you mentioned before, I have a website called er-central.com. And this is a free website uh, for teachers and students. Uh, just log in. Um, and uh, we've got uh, lots and lots of uh, reading texts, usually short texts. And many grade readers are quite long. They've got, you know, 40, 50, 60, 100 pages. And some students don't have the, the, the time or the energy or the desire to read something long. So most of the texts are reasonably short. They can be done in a few minutes. And there's a quiz at the end if a student wants to take it. They can also... Uh, do listening activities and uh, you personally Todd have been very uh, generous in in allowing ER Central to have uh, about a thousand different listening texts up there for the students on ER Central to uh, to listen to so thanks yet again for that. Oh, it was my pleasure. Now, the other side to ER Central is it's not just for individuals who want to come along and just read the, the read the 
or listen to the materials. But teachers also can create a teacher's account. They can uh, bulk register 400, 300 students, uh, tell students their ID and their password and students log in. And the teachers are able to monitor how much has been read, by when, what the reading speed were, what the test scores were, and so on. So it's very, very useful for teachers who don't have enough class time to be able to give the students practice. Uh, what they would do at the beginning of the semester is just create an account, <laughs> give the students the ID and the password, show them how the site works, let the students go and do their reading uh, in their own time, or a little bit in class time if you have uh, the time. By the end of the semester, they can then uh, assess how students are going. And this doesn't have to take a lot of class time. Um, so that's the extensive reading side of things. And anybody, please go ahead and uh, look at the site. It's totally free. Uh, just use it. Uh, we just want you to, 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 to get more of your students doing extensive reading. Uh, yeah, the website is amazing. And uh, one thing you did not talk about, though, which, which mm. I think is the most amazing tool mm. for teachers online, right. is the text helper, right. which helps you rank a text by difficulty. And then not only that, spit out a bilingual glossary of the most mm. difficult words. That's right. So can so, you please explain that? Sure. So the reason we call it text helper is because it's supposed to help students read a text. So let's take a student, maybe the students from uh, France or from Colombia, and they are intermediate level. And they see a text on the internet and think, oh, I'd like to read this, but, you know, is this going to be okay for me? And there's lots of words here that I don't know. So what am I going to do? So they say, well, I could look up each word in a dictionary. That's a bit of a problem. What they should do is copy the text, just literally copy, drag the text from whatever web page they want to. Go to text helper, er-central.com slash text helper. Um, it's available from the uh, top page. They then paste that text into an open field window. They then select their levels and they say, mm, I'm about intermediate level. And they click analyze then what the, the text helper tool does is it then finds all the words which are probably not known by the students. These will be words at the upper intermediate, at the lower advanced, at the advanced level that they probably don't know. And if they're from, say, Chile, they can also then click a button that says Spanish. And all of the definitions would come in Spanish. Or if they want, they can have them in English or in Thai or in Japanese and so on. And if they're a member of uh, ER Central, they can then save these words for their own word learning environment within, the, uh, within the, the site itself. So the idea here is to um, allow the student to be able to paste in the text. It highlights the words which they probably don't know. And immediately to the right of that, they can see the words with a definition. And they can then read it and any word they don't know, just look across, oh, that word's okay, then look across and so on. So it really, really helps them to, to be able to decipher text quite quickly. And uh, that's the reason we built it for them. Oh, it's a wonderful tool. You know, it, it's really powerful for mm. more advanced learners as well, because sure. Sure. if let's say you take an article from the Wall Street Journal and right. they can pop it in there, they can set the level high, let's say, you know, mm. um, high intermediate. Yeah. And the higher you go up, the, the less likely the chances that the word's going to have multiple meanings. Right. You know, going back to indispensable, indispensable only has one meaning. Correct. And then they're going to get that word in their own language. And, and as a yeah. teacher, I'm confident it's the right word. Yes. And you can do it in Arabic or Thai or yeah. Korean. So it's great if you have students with different with languages. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much. Right. I love that tool. My pleasure. You're quite right. And the, the corollary to what you've said is that 
because many of the high frequency words do have multiple meaning senses and that computers can only analyze a string of text. So it would say, you know, he went to the riverbank. Uh, the app is designed to, to display the most common meaning of bank, which is financial. So what might happen is it might pop up with the wrong meaning. And that's something we can't get around because computers cannot analyze to find out what meaning sense a certain word was. So yeah, students need to be aware that sometimes the right word might not pop up. That's true. But actually, you know, uh, as I mentioned, the higher you go up, from yep. I would say intermediate on up, right. the tool is, is really accurate because, you know, that word bank is going to be a very common word. It's going to be down low. Right. So the, the search engine is going to spit it out. So, yeah. so I, I would, would love if any listener has a few million dollars to spare, they'd like <laughs> right. to invest in some AI technology to help ER Central disambiguate the meaning senses of uh, I think that's coming. I think that's coming, you know, in the <laughs> it future. Is. It's definitely coming. I'm working with a colleague in Korea now. Who we're working on some AI technologies, and hopefully we can get that done. And when the algorithms get really, really good, hopefully we can start breaking words into the semantic uh, senses. And I'm sure maybe Google will allow us to do something similar in the future, uh, certainly with the translations that they, the Google Translator are being able to identify uh, meaning senses now. And hopefully they make that tool available to us so that we can then... Um, tag the correct meaning senses, but that's way down the track. Uh, well, also, uh, speaking of words, you have an app. Yep. You learn words. That's right. So the app that I've been developing with my colleague, Charlie Brown, uh, is uh, called Word Learner. Uh, some years ago, uh, Charlie made some um, apps, individual apps for um, his word list. He does the new general service list, the business service list and so on and please go to the new general service list dot or dot org or dot com i can't remember website and you can download his lists but what we found was that uh each of these individual apps was doing a great job of its own but we needed something a bit more we needed tests in there we needed uh teachers to be able to monitor this so we built an app called word learner which has all of these word lists embedded in the dictionary uh, in the in the database and uh Students um, can uh, take a vocabulary test. They can find out what level they are within, say, the new general service list. So they're sort of in the middle somewhere. And they can consciously learn those words using some games. And uh, there's also a built-in dictionary in many languages. So students, when they may be reading their textbook, there's a word they don't know. They can open the app, go to dictionary, type in the word, and the word's meaning in English or uh, its translation into various languages are there. They can then click a button and save that to their own word learning environment. We also have a website that's attached to that, which is for teachers. And the teachers are able to uh, create a class and to say that I want the, this particular word list and these particular words, I want my students to learn them. So a teacher might set their class 200, 400, 600 words to learn in a semester and then at the end, give them a test. And this is a way to make sure that all the students are learning these words or should know the words by a certain time. A teacher's not only restricted to these words that are preset from the new general services, they can also upload their own word list. So any combinations of words they can put up, maybe from their textbook or from tech activities that they're working with. And uh, they can also upload those for the students. And the thing we're building right now is in conjunction with uh, some partner websites like LO is where students can scan a QR code on a page or a 
worksheet uh, where a teacher has uh, put these words into WordLearner. The students scan the code and the words immediately appear in WordLearner for the students to learn once they've downloaded the app. So this app is very, very useful for students, um, but at the same time, very useful for teachers to follow and track what their students are doing to make sure that they're learning certain words. And it's important for teachers to know which words the students know and don't know because every textbook is unique and uh, they don't always cover all of the most frequent words. And therefore there's often gaps. So word learner is designed so that teachers can then say, I want my students to learn all these words up to intermediate level and all of those words will be learned even if they're not met in the course book. So there's different ways that teachers and students can, uh, can do this. Oh, that's um, fantastic. Yeah, so it's a the, really useful tool and we're looking forward to, to, to uh, being able to, uh, to get out this new QR code scan worksheet feature as soon as we can. So that, that leads to the big question. Mm. How do you get sleep? When do you sleep? <laughs> sleep, what's that? <laughs> right. It's amazing. You're a professor. You write books. Mm. Uh, your book just came out, actually. You're developing yeah. apps. You have a website. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we're very stuff. busy. And I think that my, my role has somewhat changed. When I first started uh, uh, in this industry some decades ago, I was a teacher, an ordinary teacher. Then I realized that I didn't know enough about teaching, so I wanted to research. So I then became a researcher. Uh, I did my PhD in vocabulary and so on. And then I took a slightly different sense. I thought, well, different direction. I thought, well, it's okay to, to be a teacher and researcher and to know this stuff. I need to apply it in some way. So I then decided I wanted to focus my career not so much on the research while I still do research. I wanted to focus more on, on, on the teachers and the students. You know, how do I make sure that students get the right words? How do I make sure that they get access to extensive reading materials? So I wrote some graded readers for various publishers. I've made these apps and these websites. And I think it's very important that as professionals, um, any knowledge that we have should be passed on in usable format to other people for the future so that my knowledge just doesn't stay in some academic book somewhere that only six people are going to read. It needs to be taken out and applied to the world by creating the dictionaries, by creating apps, by creating things based on research and based on experience so that students can learn in the best ways they can. Well, you're speaking to a man with the same philosophy. I'm a yep, practitioner at heart. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We did not talk about uh, your graded readers, by right. the way. So how many graded readers have you written? Okay, so there's two ways to answer that. One is how many have I written and how many have I edited? Um, so I have written around uh, 90 or 100 of them uh, by myself, some of them in uh, collusion with others. Uh, I've done or been part of seven series of graded readers. Um, I, uh, the first one I did was Foundation Reading Library, which is with uh, Cengage National Geographic. Um, and that's very, very low level, entry level, very uh, easy books. The second series was uh, Footprints, which is a higher level based off some National Geographic videos, which we turned into some books. There's about a hundred of those, which I was the editor, not the author. Then I did Page Turners, which is a series that I edited with Julian Tomlinson and uh, Sue Leather, which is a series of 50 books, all original stories that are quite literally page turners. And we're very proud to say that we've won about uh, seven or eight international awards for those books. Another series I've worked on uh, some history readers. There are 60 books 
put out by um, uh, publishers in Korea, uh, Seed Learning, uh, who uh, the stories are famous people from history or famous events in history, and they've been very, very well received. But I've also worked on uh, some books from Oxford and uh, some other children's readers for uh, eFuture and Compass Publishing. There's about uh, 60 books that I was working on and some of which I've written. So quite a lot, probably around, I can't remember exactly, 250, maybe 600 graded readers I've had a part in. And I'm now writing some more for an online program. Wow, that is such a body of work. You basically have a library. (laughs) Indeed, yes, yeah. (laughs) Somebody was joking the other day saying that they can learn English by just reading my books. Right. Which, of course, is not true, but it's a nice thing for them to say. Uh, And they can learn about teaching as well by reading your books. So once again, you you are the author of Teaching Extensive Reading in Another Language. That's right. And this was co-written with Paul Nation. That's right. It was released by Routledge uh, last year, and it's now available in all good stores. Please go and get it. It's quite a heavy book. Um, It's not for the casual teacher. It's for somebody who's got some experience um, in this. If you want something which is very practical, like how to do extensive reading and why we do extensive reading, I encourage you to go to the Extensive Reading Foundation uh, website. Just type into Google, you'll find it. And look for the guides. There's a very brief 16-page guide in many, many different languages that will give you the basics to why we do extensive reading, how we do it, how we set up a program, how to choose books, and so on. If you then want to learn more, then get into this book or maybe go to the other places on the Extensive Reading Foundation website where we have an ER MOOC. Uh, We have a... Uh, ER toolkit. We have lists of graded readers which are available. We also have conferences. Uh, every year, every two years, we hold an international conference on extensive reading. And in 2021, uh, it's going to be in Indonesia. Um, and uh, we hope that people can come along. So please go to the Extensive Reading Foundation website and you can find lots of information there. Well, you know, just to give your book a plug, I have gone through about half of it and Mm. it is academic but one thing that i love about the book is you have nice headings Ah. and so you can just browse through the book and read a heading like uh getting learners to read um and you can just read a short couple paragraphs that was some really powerful bits of information we wanted to do that so it's easy we want to try and answer questions so for example in one of the chapters which is how do you set up and run an extensive reading program it ends with a question of course So we ask questions like, how much should learners read? How do I measure if learners are learning from extensive reading program? Do you get, uh, how do you get unmotivated learners to do the reading? So we're trying to answer the questions that teachers have so that they can deal with uh, these situations when they face them. So I think it's really important to talk to teachers and help them to understand. Well, Dr. Warren, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. My pleasure. It was wonderful talking to you today, and uh, I look forward to seeing you at a future conference. Yes, indeed. Thank you very much, Todd, and good luck with your project with LO and Sound Grammar and everything that you do. Oh, thank you. Take care. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. 
please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.